morning, everybody. How y'all doing this morning? I see a little cold, couldn't keep you away this morning. It's good to see your faces here. Like ever said, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you all to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Special welcome, as always, to anybody who's visiting with us for the very first time. I see some new faces in the house today. So glad to have you here with us today at the SSV. And also, special welcome to those of you who are watching us uh, online or uh, either live or later on demand. You're also come, uh, welcome to come and worship with us uh, in person. Well, before I get into the message this morning, I just want to give a few shout outs. Can we give it up for our worship team this morning? I am especially fond of our entire worship team because they do such a good job of facilitating encounter with the living God each and every week. But this uh, Sunday is Gospel Sunday, and so we had our gospel set, and we have some friends of the vineyard that join us from time to time, some of them at least once a month. And uh, I I think Dr. Alan Franklin is in the house (laughs) right here. Some of you know Alan, he's a dear friend of mine. We call him Uncle Alan, I affectionately call him Unc. Uh, <laughs> but Alan used to be on staff here and he comes in once or twice a month uh, to help us continue our lean into different genres of worship. And we also have some dear friends, uh, my friend eBay, who was playing drums today. Here, I don't know where eBay is. eBay's in the back and he joins us once a month. And our sister Ale- uh, uh, Angela, who is on the uh, bass, She's probably up in the loft. Oh, she's all the way in the back. So we're just so grateful for what God is doing through worship ministry. We want to give honor where honor uh, is due. And uh, you've also probably noticed when you walked in, we're getting closer to having an actual foyer where we can enjoy uh, each other's company and hang out. As you can see, our church is growing and we're trying to be out ahead of the growth and make some room as we think about what it might look like to multiply our services. So thank you for those of you who continue to give to uh, the building fund, to give to this even more than we can imagine project. We are so very grateful for you, amen? Well, let me get into the word this morning. As I was just working in the building this uh, morning, I had to come down, I'm sorry, this morning, this week, I had to come down to the auditorium as I often have to do to either set up for something or to grab something. And when I came into the dark auditorium, I noticed little puddles uh, uh, of water on the ground. And how many of you know, if you have to maintain a building, you, you never really want to see random puddles anywhere, right? So as I walked in, I saw the puddles, and then I turned on the lights in here, and I saw pockets of puddles. And immediately I started thinking, how much is this going to cost? What is wrong? Because it's one thing to see and discover one leak, but when you see multiple leaks, you start to call on the name of the Lord, right? So I did what any responsible building owner did. I, 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 I called my roofing guy, Jimmy Calderon. And some of you know Jim Calderon because he put on the roof. And I said, Jim, I got multiple leaks over here, man. This roof is less than five years old. The, the, the roof is leaking. And I started to explain to him the issue. And I wasn't panicking, but let's just say I had an elevated level of concern. Jimmy, this is Gina with Vineyard Church, man. I got leaks help me out and he calmly replies yeah that's not a leak and i'm slightly at this point perturbed because i see not just one pocket of puddles but multiple pockets and he has the nerve to tell me yeah that's not a leak i said jim i'm standing here bro and it's leaking and it's multiple leaks and he says this time with a slight elevation in his voice it's not a leak (laughs) 
everything's frozen. It's not a leak. It can't be leaking. He says, it's condensation. That's exactly what I felt inside. I know, oh. <laughs> and he began to explain to me how the extreme cold temperatures outside mixed with the warm temperature in here, and this used to be a gymnasium, so there's no layer of insulation, causes not leaks, friends, but condensation. Now, it's important to note that Jim was not standing here with me in this auditorium. I doubt if he was even in the Flossmoor area. And nonetheless, I was struck by his quick knowledge about the situation, even more struck by how calm he was as he relayed this information, how sure he was about what I was experiencing. And this to me, friends, because you know the preacher's always looking for illustrations, <laughs> was a micro picture of wisdom. Not just the information, but his certainty and his measure of calm calmed me down. And I think there is something to mine there, something to learn there, as we continue our discussion on the subject of wisdom. I'm continuing a series that we started just a few weeks ago, a series that we're simply calling How to Be Wise. And we've been defining for the purposes of this series, wisdom as skill in living. Another preacher defined it, defines it as competence with regard to life's realities. And Tim Keller, one of my favorite preachers, says that wisdom shines in the spaces of life where the moral rules don't help you much. That is to say that there are plenty of spaces in life where you need to follow the rules. This thing is right or wrong. But somebody suggested that something like 80% of the choices that we have, something like 80% of the decisions we make, don't or won't break a moral rule. And this is where wisdom shines. Because many of us know we've been at these forks in the road, these places of decision, where well, one of these decisions will, will lead to flourishing, and one will absolutely blow up your life. If you date this one person, you'll live mostly happily ever after, but if you date that person, it'll be a disaster. You know what I'm talking about. If you say this one thing, it might cause peace, and be a balm to the relationship that heals. But if you say that other thing, usually the thing that's right on the tip of your tongue is gonna blow things up. Wisdom helps you in that space of life where the rules don't help you. And so some of us are making choices that aren't technically wrong, they're just not the best choice. And some of us have made decisions even recently that weren't categorically wrong or sinful Oh, they just weren't wise. And so God's wisdom is his gift to us to help us at life's many forks. And when we seek and apply the wisdom of God, we become, in a word, wise. And as we become skilled at living life, we find that life doesn't get easier so much, easy so much as it gets easier, right? There's a functionality to it. Not perfection, but there is some movement to life that helps us, it anchors us with the peace that comes only from God, the peace that comes when you know how to be skilled at life and it just sort of distributes itself into every meaningful area of life. We started this teaching series a few weeks ago uh, by talking about the basics, the fundamentals of wisdom, and we started with fear of the Lord. 
and an understanding that wisdom has to be sought out. Wisdom doesn't come and arrest you. You have to uncover it. You have to pursue it. You have to be, find it. And wisdom always asks us to consider how what we do today, how what we choose today will can impact our tomorrow. Shannon continued the series by talking about what she calls the wisdom gap. And that is, that is us having a healthy understanding and awareness and appreciation of the gap between our human wisdom, even our best thinking, and the wisdom of God. And of course, Pastor David talked to us last week about wisdom concerning money and how we're supposed to be sober as we steward our resources. And I'm very grateful for the wonderful preachers that we have here. Today, I want to examine, though, how wisdom, or lack thereof, can impact how we show up in the world and how we are experienced by others. I'll say that again. Today, I want to discuss a little bit how wisdom or lack thereof can and will impact how we show up in the world and how we are experienced by others. I think this is an important conversation. I'm going to take my time with it this morning. Is that all right? Said, take my, you said take my time now? I'm going to take my time then. I've noticed something about wise people, and maybe you've noticed this too that wise people are typically calm people. If you just take a few seconds and think about somebody who's wise in your life, just, just think about it. When I do that and I think about the short list of people that come up, these folks are usually calm. And this has less to do with their personality or how outgoing they are, and it seems to have more to do with how still waters tend to run deepest, right? Uh, you notice the waters that are placid on the top usually have depth, and usually reach down and are anchored to something, and I find that the same is true when it comes to the people in my life who are wise. They tend to bring a calm presence. Now, this is true in both the small realms of life where people just have deep expertise in a particular subject or a particular realm of life. I told you about my friend Jimmy Calderon. He was super calm when I explained to him my issues I was having with my, with my roof. He was calm. He was collected because he knew what he was talking about, and my problem didn't seem insurmountable to him. But this is also true when it comes to life. The people who are skilled at living life, wise when it comes to life, they tend to be a calming presence. Why? Because wise people aren't surprised by life in the eventualities of life, in the vicissitudes of life, in the way that unwise people are. Because they have the requisite experience and understanding that makes them wise. Wise people generally show up as a non-anxious presence in the world. And if you've ever experienced this, you know how powerful and how helpful a non-anxious presence can be, particularly when you need hope and help. I first heard that phrase, non-anxious presence, a year or so ago, and it's been living rent-free in my head ever since. And I think this is super relevant as anxiety is invading the lives of most of the people that I know sweeping through our country, sweeping through our world as more people become scared about what's going on in the world and as people become less and less civil, there's a greater need, I believe, for the people of God to show up in the world as a non-anxious presence, one that would point to the hope and help that we find 
in the Lord. How many of you know that you're supposed to bring hope where you show up to? How many of you know that the people of God are called to be help? How many of you know that you're supposed to be the answer to somebody's prayer and not the cause of it? I'm talking about a non-anxious presence. When I talk about anxiousness, I mean an internal unease, a disquieting of the inner man. Think your soul, think your emotions, think your feelings. It's a destabilizing reality to be anxious. And I want to talk about this sort of disquieting, particularly as it relates to two specific emotions this morning, and that is our anger and our fear. When we talk about this non-anxious presence, particularly this morning, I want to talk about the ways that anger and fear cause disruptions in our lives and therefore cause us to show up differently than God imagined we'd show up in the spaces and in the places that matter most. Anger and fear, there's an interesting connection into how these two emotions can cause major disruptions because they both arise within us when something moves toward us or the things that we love and threaten us. Think about what causes you to get angry when something moves toward you or something you love or someone you love or something that's important to you. We are moved often to anger in order to protect that. The same is true with fear. When something moves toward us or something we love or something that's important and threatens it, often it evokes a fearful response. But here's what I know. The more connected we are to God and his wisdom, the more at peace we will be, the more we'll be able to show up as a person who is a non-anxious presence in the spaces and in the places that matter most. Despite all the things that move toward us to threaten us, despite all the scary things that go bump in the night, those of us who are anchored to God and his wisdom can move through it smartly. Amen? This means because our souls are anchored in the Lord, we can show up in the world around us as wise, a steady anchor person. I'm talking about in the world As you bump into casual strangers in the marketplace where you go every day, where you work, here in Christian community, and especially, and especially, and especially in the place that matters most, where you sleep. People who call you family and roommates, this is super uh, important. I simply want to title this message this morning, Wisdom and the Non-Anxious Presence. And this morning, I just want to give you four bits of information this morning, four nuggets that you can tuck in your pocket and take with you this week. And I hope that you track with me as we go along here. Let me just pray and bless our time this morning. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your word and truth. I thank you so much that our friends have gathered in your house, in your name. The worship team has set the atmosphere to respond and receive from you today, Lord. And I just pray that you would put power on these words you give me to speak this morning. I know that in a room this size, somebody came in carrying something that is ill-fitting, something that you did not intend for them to carry. Somebody came in today, Lord, with something that is eating their lunch, and you want to lift up a standard against it, which you teach us this morning. 
Just spirit arrest us this morning. May you have our full attention as you do your work in this place today. We ask all these things in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Four things I want to give you this morning. The first is this, our emotions are good things. Our emotions are good things. Now, some of you know this, and you don't need to be told this. You're like, okay, I know that. But others of us need to be either reminded of this fact or told this important truth for the very first time. Some of us need to have this said to us maybe quarterly or maybe monthly because we have been socially and spiritually formed to believe the opposite is true. That our emotions and our feelings are there to mislead us or to make us overreact or somehow misguide us. I, I say this as a young boy who grew up in the 80s on the south side of Chicago with a father who was raised by the streets and seven sisters. And so I was often told, boy, quit all that crying before I give you something to cry for. Anybody ever been told that? Stop that crying, or I give you something to cry for. Now, if I had the courage, I would have said, I, I, I already have something to cry for. You know how you know? Because I'm crying. <laughs> and as toxic as I believe that thinking was, you might walk up on me on any given day and say to my, one of my four boys, boy, stop all that crying. Because it's kind of in me, right? I need to hear that my emotions are not bad things. The, 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 the scriptures paint this picture that our emotions are not just helpful, but they are healthy. I love this passage of scripture in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. It says, for everything there is a season and a time for every activity under the heaven. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to turn away, a time to search and a time to keep quiet, uh, excuse me, a time to quit searching, a time uh, to keep and a time to throw away a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be quiet and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. I am struck by all the things listed in this passage, and there are a lot that have some kind of emotional tether, some type of connection to the full range of our human emotions. Cry, laugh, grieve, dance, kill, heal, love, hate, war, peace. You hear all those words? And you can imagine how they are tethered to the full range of human emotion because God created us to be emotional beings. God meant for us to feel and to feel deeply and have those emotions structure how we live our lives. Whenever I do a funeral, I open by saying, listen, guys, we're not here to rush you past grief. Because the scriptures, as I understand it, give us permission to feel the full range 
of human emotion. So I say to them, Matthew chapter 5, verse, verse 3, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That is to say, it's my understanding that you can't even be comforted by the comforter unless you lean in some meaningful way toward grief all throughout the scriptures, it nods in a helpful, affirming way toward emotions. I don't have the time this morning to run it down. But what I learned though is our emotions are good in their proper place. Our feelings are good in the appropriate measure. I feel that that needs to be said. And some wise person said a while ago that emotions and feelings make great passengers, but they make lousy drivers. I say that again for the folks on the live stream. Our emotions and feelings, they make great passengers, but they are lousy drivers. That is to say that our emotions and our feelings are the, the, the emotional check engine lights of the soul. They signal to us things that we need to be attentive to, things that we might need to pay attention to, things that we might need to be more curious about. They're the signal flares that our souls send so that we might be attentive to them. And I think that this is especially true uh, when it comes to our anger and fear. Jesus, our eternal example, experience what we can see is the full range of human emotion. He grieved when he learned that his friend Lazarus had died, even though he knew he'd raise him again. The full range of human emotion. You say, I, I can kind of see that, preacher, but did Jesus ever get angry? And somebody said, oh yes. Sure, when he came into the temple and found that the money changers were exploiting those who had come from distant lands to worship. This is what the scripture tells us in John chapter 2. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple with the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. Now, you can't even imagine that with a soft, smiling tone, right? Jesus was angry. He came into the temple and he saw exploitation happening. He was angry when he witnessed the commodification of worship and he drove them out. He got physical. He got angry, but the anger was righteous. The anger was righteous. It was principled. It wasn't a self-serving anger. It was good anger, helpful anger that moved toward a threat and extinguished it. And all throughout scripture, we see God as God who gets angry, but the scriptures tells us that God is slow to anger and not that he avoids it altogether. So not no anger, but what? Slow anger. So preacher, make a good point there. But was Jesus ever afraid? I got you. Well, slow down. I think that's a good question. And honestly, because I don't want to take any liberties with the text, I will say I don't know if we ever saw Jesus afraid, but we saw him deeply concerned as the time drew near for him to suffer and die. You call it what you want, but my man was concerned. 
said, how you know, Mark chapter 14, verse 32, they went to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and Jesus said, sit here while I go pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he became deeply troubled and distressed. That's that disquieting of the soul. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Went up a little farther and fell to the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Take this cup of suffering away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. What a picture of Jesus in great distress, probably anxious, probably afraid. I don't want to take liberties deeply concerned, disquieted within, and yet he responds appropriately despite the impending circumstances. And I'm, I gotta tell you, I'm just glad this is in here. They didn't have to put this in here. But I'm glad this is in here because if my Savior can get concerned about what's coming up, my Savior can look to an unpleasant future with concern and distress, then it might be okay for us to do it too. You understand what I'm saying? Our emotions are good and not bad. In their proper place. In the passenger seat of our vehicles. Because if we don't tend to emotion and steward our emotions well, we will not show up properly. We will not be experienced in the way that the people of God should be experienced. Emotions are good. And now that we've gotten that out of the way, I want to go to my second thing. Is that all right? I'm going anyway. Second thing is examine your emotions. Examine your emotions and feelings. And the truth is, some of us simply don't do this. They simply don't do this. At great expense to the people that they interact with. Because the people like this, as long as they feel it, it's valid. As long as they think it, it happened. And so they haven't learned, as the wise have, that our, our feelings are intended to be examined. And some of us falter in life, and we show up as an anxious presence in all these spaces that are important, not simply because we're feeling emotions, but simply because we have neglected that important next step to examine them, to put them under the microscope. And typically, people who fail to do this are people who are lacking in that self-awareness that is helpful to be experienced well by other people. And we talked about self-awareness this past summer. And you just end up flopping around life, landing awkwardly on people. And if you haven't installed some people in your life to be a helpful mirror toward you, you, friend, will show up like a hurricane in situations that require calm, sensitivity, wisdom. Is this making any sense? 
So it's wise for us to examine our emotions, to analyze our emotions, to interrogate our emotions, to get down to the root of what's happening. Now, some of you uh, are, are familiar with the story of Jonah in the Old Testament. Jonah was an Old Testament prophet who was commissioned by the Lord, commanded by the Lord to go to Nineveh, this wicked place with wicked people who were doing all kinds of evil things. And he was supposed to go to Nineveh and tell these people of the coming judgment of the living God. Now, Jonah has a problem with this. He doesn't want this assignment. And if you're familiar with the story, he runs away because he wants nothing to do with this assignment. Well, after a few turns of events, Jonah relents and he goes to Nineveh. And wouldn't you know it, the people hearing about what God is about to do, they do what? Something startling. They repent and they turn from God. And you would think that Jonah would be happy about this, but my man has an attitude problem. And one of the most bizarre chapters in all of the Bible, reread this, chapter 4, verse 1. This change of plans, the people repenting, greatly upsets Jonah. And he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I had left home that you would do this, Lord? He's, he's out of his mind. This is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn, uh, turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. This guy, he's tripping, right? He's outside of his mind. He's angry. He's bothered with the Lord. And the Lord has just, just a few words for Jonah, verse 4. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? Is it right for you to be angry? And the Lord would just include a few more words. He said, you, you're a prophet. You work for me, right? <laughs> What's the end game with all this ministry stuff, Jonah, right? Repentance. I'm a pursuing God. It's with my kindness that I draw people unto me. We have an understanding about that. Uh, so what's your problem, bro? And he packed all of that into just a few words, just a simple question. Is it right for you to be angry about this? And dear friends, this is a question that few of us ever ask ourselves. And this is a question that we get real spicy with anybody else who might move toward us with humble curiosity about what's got us so uptight. We never examine this anger and it shows. It shows. Jonah was asked by God a question that he should have asked himself as he felt something bubbling up on the inside of him. It's all right to feel anger. Can't help how it starts or how it swells, but you can't set that thing down in a chair and interrogate it if you're wise. Should have asked himself, why am I mad about this, really? And let me tell you something, man. If you get down to asking yourself that question, it will, make, uh, it will make a remarkable difference in your life. Why are you mad, really? 
There's this lady I live with. Um, I don't get, we don't need to get into calling names. We don't need to. Get into I love you, baby. I love you. And sometimes I get asked, what, 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 what are you mad about? <laughs> it's too close to home. Let me just zoom out a little bit. <laughs> That's what it's doing. <laughs> Thank you, Goose. I needed that. But if you, some of us are bosses and managers and leaders in our workplace, and you say, why, why did this, why did my employees failure? Why did they make me so mad? And if you start to interrogate the thing, you, you, you start to realize, oh, oh it, it made me look incompetent in front of my other. And you realize to get down to the bottom of that is super important because you're prone to overreact and your anger isn't righteous. It's rooted in ego and pride. And not only will you disrupt the fabric of your working life, you will be a horrible witness unto the Lord. You understand what I'm saying? And this works in all the realms of life. You are a parent and you have kids. Why, am I, why was I so angry at that? When you sit down and examine, you do the autopsy of the situation, and you go, why was I so angry? And if you're honest, you would say, because they made me look bad. Or I felt disrespected. But you only get those answers if you interrogate it. We got our students in here. Let me try one for you. Why did I fly off the handle? my parents. After all, I did something that any wise person would know would utterly ruin my life, and this is their job to disciple me. Why did I get so angry? Oh, because they defied my will. My friends are going to think some kind of way about this. And I, so, but if you, if you don't ever interrogate it, you just feel it, and that's on the books. It's on the ledger as your parents having done you wrong. But if you sit with it, if you take it to the Lord in prayer and say, why am I mad? Really? Listen, half the time, you're going to have to go and apologize. And you can just play this out. Pastor, you, you, some ministry, you know, role here around the church. Why did that make me so angry? That the worship team messed up that song. Why did it make me so angry that this thing wasn't right? Oh, we had guests today. And it made, made it look like I don't run a tight ship. <laughs> See, it's rooted. And I'm going to take my time with this because I haven't got to the spouses yet. I told you I live with this lady, right? Why did that make me so angry? Why did I respond in that way? And I didn't feel loved. I felt disrespected. And where I'm from, you don't disrespect the man, the king. I'm the king. You see these women, these are pants, you know? <laughs> but you don't, you don't get there if you don't, if you don't examine it if you don't interrogate it, and you end up flopping around 
life. The same is true with our fear. Jesus was asleep in the boat in Mark chapter 4 with his disciples. Winds and waves are going crazy. Water lapping into the boat. Verse 38 says, Jesus was sleeping in the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke him up shouting, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped and there was great calm. Verse 40, then he asked them, Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? So in the same way that the Lord asked Jonah, uh, do you have a right to be mad? This is kind of in the same ballpark, only related to our fears. Why are you afraid? And might I add, why are you afraid really? Uh, why are you afraid really? And wise people do this instinctively because they know that they should doubt their doubts. They know they should interrogate their emotions to see what's at the root, to see what they've attached themselves to. Jesus asks, and perhaps rhetorically he asked, why are you so afraid? What's gotten into you? What does your fear say about your understanding of who I am and what I can do in your life? He might have said, if you see me sleeping on a cushion, then you get yourself a cushion and come snuggle up next to me. It's going to be all right. He just sang the song. Sooner or later, it'll turn in my favor. It's turning around. In this life or the next, it'll turn around. It'll work itself out in this life or the next. Why are you afraid? And some of us, our lives are filled with so much anxiety and worry and fear because we've never interrogated, never analyzed, or never examined that which makes us afraid. We have to examine our emotions. Otherwise, we'll just go flopping around life and we won't show up as a non-anxious presence. Third thing. Super important here. Learn to value a proportional response. Learn to value a proportional response. Um, and this simply means that you show up and you respond to circumstances and events and people in a way that's appropriate and that meets the moment. I first heard this um, proportional response phrase on, uh, on one of my favorite TV shows, it's a TV show called The West Wing. Anybody ever watch The West Wing? Now this is the best television program that's ever been made. If you disagree with me, you are wrong, okay? You're wrong. The West Wing. <laughs> In episode three of season one, uh, we encounter the fictional presidential administration of Jed Bartlett, played by uh, Martin Sheen. And in episode three, a plane carrying uh, a new friend of the president was blown out of the sky by the Syrian government. And the president, uh, there's this scene where the president's in the Situation Room with all the Joint Chiefs, his military advisors, and he's trying to, as a first-time commander-in-chief, uh, uh, come up with a response to this act 
of violent aggression against the U.S. The president is angry, he's furious. Not only is this an assault on the American people, but he killed, this attack killed his friend. He wants to carpet bomb all of Syria uh, against the advice of uh, his military advisors. And the leader of the Joint Chiefs, played by John Amos, encourages the president toward what he called a proportional response. A response that would seen, be seen both at home and abroad as a response that was appropriate for the offense. The president wants to hear nothing of it. He wants swift and decisive action. And the admiral says to him these words, Mr. President, we can do this, but you have to understand that this act of aggression will be seen both at home and abroad as an overreaction by an inexperienced first-time commander-in-chief. And they slowly work him off the ledge toward what they call a proportional response, one that is appropriate and meets the moment well. And this law of proportionality is meant to prevent excessive responses to threats or grievances. It's designed to prevent overreactions, as we are prone to do, especially when we get angry and when we are afraid. And wise people do this instinctively. They've learned how to meet the moment with an appropriate wise reaction to slights, offenses, to things that cause a threat. And they've come by this not because they were born with it, but they come, through, come by this through years of practice and discipline. They've been discipled by life, and no doubt they've been discipled by others, and they've let others over the years reflect back to them how they've been experienced as they've handled situations in the past. Wise people show up with a proportional response, and they meet the moments well, do you? Don't answer out loud. I can tell by your faces. Wisdom literature and scripture is full of wisdom. It's got plenty to say when it comes to how we respond, particularly as it relates to anger. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 29. People with understanding or wise people control their anger. A hot tip temper shows great Foolishness. So the scripture draws a direct line to hot-temperedness or overreactions and foolishness. And it says also here that wise people control their anger. They're slow to anger. They meet the moments well. Proverbs 15 verse 1 says, A gentle answer deflects anger, but harsh words make tempers flare. I got to tell my kids this all the time. Come in here, man, as I've overheard the conversation through a couple of walls. My man, you got in your hand gasoline and water. Which did you just pour on the fire? Gasoline. <laughs> Go fix it. My gentle answer deflects anger. But harsh words make temper flare. And some of you experienced this this week. And if you aren't wise enough to drive here separately from your spouse, you might have experienced this like on the way over here today. <laughs> Proverbs 15, 18, hot-tempered person starts fights 
and cool-tempered person stops them. 16 verse 32, better to be patient than powerful. Better to have self-control than to conquer a city. 19 and and 11, sensible people control their temper. They earn respect by overlooking wrongs. And I love that one because it talks about earning respect, which gives a nod to how we're being experienced by others and the reputation that we're building. And since we're Christian folks who work for the Lord, we can't talk about this without talking about our reputation and how we're experienced by others. If there's a quarrel at work, who do they want in the room? Who are they asking to come and hear the details of the matter? There's a problem at home. Oh, your kid's saying, let's get mom and dad in here. They'll pour some water on this fire. Oh, they say, God, we better work this out ourselves because they come in hot when they come. And my kid might say that about me. <laughs> Told you, don't, don't let this fool you. I'm the most collected you'll ever see me on this stage. If I'm prone to misbehave, it's going to be at my address. You understand what I'm saying to you? Final one, Proverbs 19, 19. Hot-tempered people must pay the penalty. You better straighten them out. If you rescue them once... You will have to do it again. And that's a nod to our parents in the room. Johnny, he just, he just blowing off some steam. Yeah, he's going to be blowing off some steam in, in a Cook County jumpsuit if you don't get on his behind. Because if you rescue him, if you give him a pass, if you sweep it under the rug, you're going to have to do it again. Or as teachers will. Or the sheriff will. You see where I'm going with this? But wisdom moves us toward a proportional response, a response that appropriately meets the moment. And some of us go, man, preacher, this is, this is good, helpful stuff, but I, if I had to take a test, if I had to assess how well I do on this at this moment, I would not pass. Well, most of us wouldn't. That's why I'm here talking about it. Which also brings us to my fourth and final thing, tip, pro tip this morning. The final one is to to trust the Lord. Um, And to some of you that might not fit the list, um, might sound trite, it might be, you know, dismissive as the sort of thing that a preacher should say, that's what something preacher would have to say, trust the Lord, trust the Lord. I know it's easier to say this than it is to do this. It might even feel a bit dismissive or a pat on the head for those of us who might be consumed with anxious fear or might, might not be controlling our anger very well. Or if you've, been dis- if you've discovered in real time this morning that you are an anxious presence, not a non-anxious presence, this might feel trite, dismissive, but is not. I know what you're thinking about your fear. You're thinking, preacher, I can't control my fear. I mean, fear is a physiological, emotional response to to, to external stimulus. I I can't really control that. 
can't control it. And anger is similar. I, I can't tamp down what makes me angry and how my body and emotions respond to what feels like a threat. I can't help it, right? I've not, no control over it, right? You, friends, are, are, are wrong. But you're sincerely wrong, and I can appreciate that. But I'm going to help you anyway. In the same way that the Proverbs tell us that the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord. And we've unpacked that this is a reverent fear, not like this fear that God's going to smash us, but a reverent fear that understands that God is mighty, he is strong, he is worthy of our respect, and worthy to be the king on the thrones of our hearts. In that same spirit, God is worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our trust. He's a credible God who's proven himself over and over to be worthy of our trust and our deep and abiding faith and what our fears and our angers, especially what our response to those things show us oftentimes is that we don't trust God. We don't trust God. And in the same way that it's not natural to fear God, you have to learn to fear God. You have to come to fear him, to see him for who he really is. In the same way, we have to learn to trust God. We have to learn to trust God. Because as we learn to trust God, those things that go bump in the night typically don't Stop going bump in the night. But the closer we walk with the Lord, the less the scary things scare us. The closer we walk to the Lord, and the more we come to embody his character, and the more of our weight that we lean on him, we come to see that we're supposed to respond a certain way. Things that used to be important to us that were causing a reaction suddenly don't do that anymore, but this is something that you gotta learn. So I'm not telling you stop being afraid. I'm, to, uh, I'm trying to help you to take a closer walk with Jesus. You've studied the thing that makes you afraid. You're, you're well versed in the thing that makes you angry. But how about you take that same energy, keep that same energy, and try my Jesus? And to know that he's a way maker and a promise keeper and a light in the darkness and that he will work it out for you in this life or the next. Trust the Lord. Walk closely with him. And worship team, you guys can make your way back up here. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. This isn't dismissive. This isn't a pat on the head. This tells us the solution for our anxious life. The solution for our overreactions toward our fear and our anger. As the songwriter said, turn your eyes 
toward Jesus. Look full on his wonderful face. Y'all know the rest? And the things of earth will grow what? Strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Didn't say they'll go away, disappear. They'll still be there, but they will grow what? Strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Who knew that the solution to showing up with a non-anxious presence was just a closer walk with Jesus? With dwelling in the strong tower that is the Lord. Taking your abide under the shadow of of the Almighty, like, who knew? So some of you, this is what you will try to walk out this week. And if you're feeling brave, you might ask the people who you regularly interact with if you show up as an unanxious presence. If you show up with gasoline or water for the fire. And if you can't quite make that step yet, maybe you pray the prayer of the psalmist, search me, oh God. Show me me. Help me to experience that quiet in my soul and to show up and be experienced well by others because after all, I am your witness. I am on mission for you. Who am I talking to today? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you. You can stand if you can. We thank you that you are a way maker, that you are a promise keeper, and that you are a light in the darkness. We thank you that even our present circumstances won't linger always and that we can trust you with our life. Trust you with our emotions. Come Holy Spirit. Do what only you can do.